by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. to do the repair that's necessary in our communities. It's an opportunity to, to focus and leverage the work that it's gonna go into delivering clean air and clean water to do the, to do the reparative work. Welcome. This week, we are doing something a little different on the coolest show with our introduction. You are in store for a treat with this conversation with our guest today, Ali Zaidi, the Deputy Secretary for Energy and Environment, Office of Governor Andrew Cuomo. Around the time we were taping this amazing conversation, police had arrested four protesters who had locked themselves to the controversial National Grid frack gas pipeline construction site in New York. Two environmental advocates fashioned each other to the underground tube for three hours, while two more activists secured themselves to the active building site at the corner of Manhattan and Montrose Avenues, protesting the utility company's seven-mile fossil fuel pipe. Groups like the No North Brooklyn Pipeline Coalition and Frack Out of Brooklyn have been part of the protest. So during our conversation, I had the opportunity to ask Alex Zadie about the national grid and how it is expanding a massive frack gas transmission pipeline in North Brooklyn and how it will run directly through black, brown, and working class neighborhoods, putting those communities at risk. Now, Governor Cuomo has condemned the pipeline, but I need to ask, why hasn't the governor revoked their permits for good? You can hear his response now, but I'm so glad we get to have these conversations and have guests like Alex Zadie. And it's also why I love The Coolest Show and you, The Coolest Show listeners. So let's get right to the conversation right now. Um... So, Ali, before you before I get to your this year your bio, which is extensive, man, how are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, all things considered, uh, blessed to be uh, blessed to be alive and to be healthy and and to uh, to get to do work that that makes me feel good. Um, you know, those are all uh, and get paid for it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, pretty feeling fortunate, feeling good. That's good. That's good. Um, I'm assuming that you're safe and everything is well around you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, where it's, it's been, uh, it's been for, I think everybody, a, um, a, a year that's probably been more challenging than, uh, your run of the mill year. Uh, and I'm, I'm no exception to that rule, but, uh, it does make you really um, uh, value what you got and and um, count the blessings and and uh, uh, be grateful for it. Well, um, Ali Zaidi, um, 
I want to, I want to, I want to get right to just um, who you are and 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 your and your bio and and all that stuff. But I guess before we get to that, uh, I guess first, what are you what are you listening to right now? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, you know, uh, I've had. I'll just be very honest and, and recognize that it might be embarrassing. Um, the, the two artists that I've listened to most recently, one, I've been going through some of the old school Alicia Keys. Okay. Um, and then there's this artist I actually um, listened to live a few years ago, Tyler Childers, who's a completely different end of the spectrum, probably from a musical based perspective. But like Alicia Keys tells this beautiful story about uh, where he's grown up and lived in Appalachia and just love both of them. Uh, like to hear the sort of stories in the ballad. So that's, that's my mood. Man, I love that. For folks who are listening, I'm talking to Ali Zaidi and, and, uh, and I wanted to get to um, his bio for those who need to understand how important uh, Ali is for our movement. Um, um, Ali Zaidi was appointed Deputy Secretary for Energy and Environmental Chairman of Climate Policy and Finance in 2020. Mr. Zaidi led, leads the governor's efforts on all aspects of climate policy and finance, including implementation of the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act infrastructure and innovation programs and sustainable finance initiatives. Mr. Zaidi previously served as the pre-court scholar and adjunct professor at Stanford University and as an attorney in private practice uh, where he was outstanding. Uh, while in private practice, Mr. Zaidi co-founded Lawyers for Sustainable Economy, a first of a kind initiative to connect sustainability-focused startups with pro uh, um, pro bono legal services, um, which is so important for our community. For eight years, Mr. Zaidi served in key economic um, and environmental policy roles in the Obama-Biden administration. In 2014, President Obama appointed him Associate Director at the White House Office of Management and Budget, OMB, where he led a team responsible for overseeing a wide array of policy, budget, and management issues across a nearly 100 billion portfolio and a number of federal agencies, including the Department of Energy's Agricultural and Interior, um, the Environmental Protection Agency, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, and the Army Corps of Engineers Civil Works, the National Society Foundation, and the Tennessee Valley Authority, the nation's largest, largest public utility. In this role, Mr. Zaidi also served as OMB's Chief Policy Official for Implementation of the Climate Action Plan, which he helped design and draft and was part of the delegation that negotiated the historic International Climate Change Agreement in Paris. Before OMB, Mr. Zaidi served in a number of roles in the Obama-Biden administration, including as a Deputy Director of Energy Policy for the White House Domestic Policy Council and as Senior Director for Cabinet Affairs at the White House. Mr. Zaidi has also served on a number of boards, including the Vice Chair of Center for Carbon Removal, Trustee um, of the National Resources Defense Council, NRDC, 
and director of America's Promise Alliance and of the Generations Initiative, and as co-chair of the Ashman Institute EEP Strategy Group on the Future of Artificial Intelligence and Robotics. He holds an AB and JD from Harvard and Georgetown University, where he was editor of the Georgetown Law Journal and executive editor of the Georgetown Law Journal's annual review of criminal procedure. My brother Ali is obviously an amazing, amazing person, but all of all this bio, I know that you do this work and you use your genius uh, to make sure that we can have a safe planet for all. But in the midst of all this, who is um, uh, Ali? Who, who is Ali in this aspect? Yeah, well, first of all, let me say, um, uh, Thank you for, for reading through all of that. Um, makes me feel old, uh, which is unusual, um, except for when I'm playing basketball. Uh, then, I, then I definitely feel old. Well, you know, I was going to um, ask you a basketball question about when, you to, when, I, when, I, got, when I got to I know it's Georgetown Law and, and, and all that, but I was going to ask you a basketball question. But no, but keep going. Are we what? Yeah, and, 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 and let me say, um, I, I know I, I don't get to introduce you on your show, but. Um, you are your work, your your advocacy, your organizing, your voice, uh, so authentic, so powerful, and um, really inspiring to me, and and in shaping the work that I've gotten the chance to do. Um, look, I, you know the the resume says something, um, but really, who who am I? I was kid born in Pakistan. Um, uh, fortune brought me to Northwest Pennsylvania, a um, rural community. Uh, about 7,000 folks that um, loved, embraced, uh, pulled in uh, a family that didn't look like them, didn't worship like them, didn't speak the same language. Um, and really, if anything, um, you know, uh, beyond family and genetics, um, what shaped me is that experience of being welcome. Um, that's what drew me into public service. Um, now multiple times, it's what, um, you know, tugs on my heart when I see, uh, the news of, of kids being separated from their parents at the border. Uh, you know, that's not been my experience. That's not the America that I know. Um, and that's why I fight for, uh, an America that, that lines up with my experience, that lines up with the values I hold dear, um, so that's, that's what pulled me in. Uh, you know, we were, we, we were very fortunate. Um, uh, there were moments when, uh, going to school, I, uh, was a beneficiary of, you know, um, free lunch, uh, and didn't, didn't realize there was a government program on the other side of that. And now I know, and now I know that we have to fight for things like that. Um, but at the same time, you know, that also shapes my entry point into climate. Um, which is an entry point that is focused on what can climate do, not just for the flora and the fauna, um, not just for, you know, the, um, the majesty of the blue marble that we see from space, uh, but for the people who live here. Um, can it give us uh, ladders of opportunity? Um, can, it, can it be the reason we focus ourselves on the work of repair um, in places that have been um, as a result of decisions, advertent or inadvertent, um, left behind, uh, hurt, harmed. 
Um, so that's, that's me. That's, that's, that's why I do this work. Man, I love that. That is Ali Zaidi, and he is, he is my guest today on The Coolest Show. Uh, he already told you what he's listening to. Now he tells you who he is. And I don't think many people would have known, Ali, that, you know, your background, that you, man, you know, you had a background that brought you through some aspects of poverty. That's actually, I mean, that's so, I think you, so I guess that shapes particularly um, how you view the environment, which is actually my next question. Because I guess from that viewpoint, um, we, you know, most people in our world view this from the planet first and not the people, which is amazing. <laughs> I think that we, we do view from that blue marble, <laughs> um, and, which is beautiful. We, we, love our, we love the blue marble. We don't, we're not against the blue marble. We love the blue marble, but it is important for the people on the planet. Um, so, and, uh, so what is the environment? And, and this is just the broad, we're going to get all into what, what you're doing now in New York state. And I mean, there's so many, I think your viewpoint and what you say you do is such an important for our movement, but what is the, what is the environment? And when I mean the environment, I don't mean this, we, we, we don't mean this clean air and clean water as some folks may say, um, which is obviously very, very important. But what does the environment in total mean to you? Yeah, I, lo- I love that we, we get to detour into philosophy here for a second. Um, yeah. But I think it's so important. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, 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 Aristotelian by persuasion. I think it's really important to know where you're going um, uh, before you set out. And uh, defining defining the what is so critical. Um, the for me, the, the you know the environment is is a um, is the place our communities and our people live. Um, it's the place uh, places from which they draw their inspiration. Um, uh, you know these are these are not just functional places where we live. They are. They are part of our spirit and our soul. They, for 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 folks, um, uh, places where we draw inspiration, and they're a product of chance and choice. Um, and and I think it's really important when we interact with that concept of environment to hone in on both of those things. Um, the chance part means that you know if you lucked out and you um, landed next to a body of fresh water. Uh, then God bless you, but that's not just your bounty. Um, it's, it, it, you know, there's some responsibility that comes with that. So I think the chance part is something we need to, we need to understand. Um, and the second part is choice. You know, I don't want to, uh, present just a anthro, uh, centric, um, you know, vision of what the environment is, but, but so much of what we're seeing is the result of human action, uh, or inaction. And I'm not just talking about, you know, uh, parts per million and uh, the, the fires and the hurricanes and the floods and the fury that we've unleashed in the form of climate change. I'm talking about stuff like, you know, when we went out as a society and made decisions about redlining, um, the result of that is there are communities that are literally hotter today than uh, other communities because they've got more pavement and fewer trees. Um, and so when we've made the choices that have led us to climate change, those communities now are more susceptible to things like heat, heat waves, uh, which, by the way, we don't name and we probably don't spend enough 
time and attention um, uh, 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 preparing and adapting to. So I think the environment is, at least for me, the, you know, the first time I really became um, super conscious about a lot of this stuff um, was, uh, was actually um, a decade, decade and a half, I guess decade and a half ago, I was uh, visiting a school in Harlem, um, uh, incredible school, uh, one of those um, places where uh, the educators in the community had really poured in resources, turned it into, um, you know, a farmer market and a place where kids can go to the dentist. And I remember walking around with the, with the leadership of the school um, and saying, gee, I wonder why there are empty seats here. Mm. You know, this is such a good school. Uh, in a community that's otherwise distressed, why are there empty seats here? And the the teacher pointed to the highway that was outside um, and talked about um, the the uh, the level of asthma um, that afflicted the community and its kids being you know astronomical compared to to the rest of the country. Um, and and that's that's what environment means to me. It's you know, as a kid, you don't get to choose a lot. Um, and it's, and it's really about chance where you end up. Um, and society gets to make the choices. And do we make the choices that make sure that kid can even show up and sit in the classroom? That's part one. And then part two is, you know, is the water clean, is the paint clean? Um, uh, and, and so on and so forth. But that's, that's environment for me. Thank you for that. I guess that actually leads now, and I'm glad we had that uh, philosophical <laughs> uh, discussion to lead into now the, the policy part of this conversation. And I, I really want to talk with you now about, um, and I, I and I mean, I, I mean, I really, I actually really thank you for what you you just broke down because I think a lot of folks in the movement do not start their level of conversation in regards to climate from looking at the empty chairs that are in schools or the highways um, and understand sometimes the, the problems that have caused um, the pollution in these communities, which then leads to where we are now in regards to the pandemic, uh, COVID-19, um, environmental justice, um, and this upcoming flu season. Um, so one, I guess I just want to ask you from your standpoint, um, just for those who need to hear from you, what is your meaning of environmental justice, um, just in general? And then, and then, and then, what, what, what is the, what is, how does the, the flu season and uh, COVID nineteen and poverty, all of that, right now, from an overview, uh, connect specifically in New York? Yeah. So I think one. Um, environmental justice is, is, uh, the opportunity that this work presents, um, to, to start to do the repair that's necessary in our communities. Um, it's the, uh, it's, it, it, so, so one, it's, it's, it's an opportunity to, to focus, um, and leverage the work that it's going to go into delivering clean air and clean water. Um, to do the to do the reparative work. The second is, you know, it's an analytical tool, um, and not to be super wonky and nerdy, but 
it's, it is about data. You know, we can, we can pinpoint the places um, that are suffering from cumulative impacts. Um, and we know we can, ex- we can um, back out from that, the, the higher risk exposures that, that associate with that. Um, it can help us target the work that we're doing. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons that I was attracted to, to working for Governor Cuomo and working in New York and implementing this climate law is that it wasn't just a climate law about getting to net zero. It was a climate law about delivering the benefits to environmental justice communities. The, the climate law that went into effect at the beginning of this year that was passed last year that really is the product um, of the governor's vision and leadership and the advocacy and the ideation of so many uh, incredible New Yorkers is uh, premised on the fact that you can get to net zero and in doing that, you can advance the economy um, and you can lift up particular communities. And in part, you do that through public policy. So the law requires that 35% of the benefits and aspires to 40% of the benefits from the investments required to get to this goal to flow to disadvantaged communities. So I see this as a, as an opportunity. I see it as an imperative and I see it as an analytical tool that makes us a better position to get the most impact out of the work that we need to meet the moment in terms of science. And Go ahead, Rip. No, that's what, I just wanted to ask you. Well, I, I really want you to kind of expound because I know that when we look at the, the the data in these communities, when we see, I mean, clearly we're going to get this. I want to get this later, and specifically how these communities have been vulnerable and have been the path of least resistance. But then, as you're looking at that, are you are you are you looking at how companies, corporations, literally, I mean, are literally polluting communities? This it was that kind of the backdrop of when you were designing that law and, and that policy, I'm just trying to get more into how did that frame the policy as you put forth? Yeah. The, I mean, the, the law as it's been drafted, um, I think starts from, uh, and, and this is, this is a genius that I, I take no credit for because I, I was not here when the law was being negotiated. Yeah. I'm a technocrat, not a, not a politician. So I'm not going to run to take credit for someone else's work, but, um, but look, I, I, um, I think it's, it's a realization that I think more and more we're coming to as a country, which is we don't just face one crisis. We face multiple. Um, and one of those crises is climate. The other, the other are a crisis of disempowerment and a democracy in decline. Another crisis is, um, is the crisis we face in terms of justice for our black and brown and indigenous communities. And so I think the folks that were involved in, in drafting this legislation um, and the governor recognize the multiple crises that we face. And so the law then, the product of that is a law that says, yes, let's sprint to net zero, but let's do it in a way that lifts up those communities that have been disempowered uh, and, and hurt um, in, in the buildup of the economy that we've got, one that's reliant on uh, emissions to keep moving forward. I agree with that. Um, speaking, speaking of heroes who were helping in throughout the greater of New York and New York City, um, did you know um, Cecil uh, Corbin Mark? 
I don't know if you. Yeah, no, I, I mean, um, you know, we, we started at the top, we were talking about 2020 um, and uh, you know, what a year it's been and a year marked with such deep and personal, I think loss for so many of us. Um, uh, you know, I've lost family this year uh, and, and still trying to make sense of, of some of that. Um, but losing, losing Cecil was, was just um, devastating. And, uh, you know, I think about uh, the policy we've developed in this space, whether it's literally the climate law that we're talking about or the individual ideas. Um, and we lost a real, you know, authentic, um, genuine, good human being. I lost my grandfather. I, w- I called Cecil um, and he was just such a source of strength and empathy um, and to lose him as quickly as we did, uh, you know, was ravaging. And, and all I can think of is how do we honor that, that legacy and that work? Um, I, I, I actually, uh, this past weekend sat down and I wrote down all of the ideas he and I had been kicking around, um, uh, you know, improving indoor air quality, uh, in public housing, um, uh, strengthening the transition for, uh, folks who grow up in disadvantaged communities into good paying labor jobs in the clean energy sector. Um, and, uh, all I know how, uh, in terms of balm, uh, for the grief that we all face, uh, the only balm is to serve and to advance those ideas and get them to fruition. So, um, I'm glad you brought him up. Uh, uh, he, he, he informs this work. He inspired it. Um, and he's going to be there with us in the implementation of it. Yeah, no, uh, some more equipment, rest in power. We, we definitely miss you and we pray for everyone at WEAC, um, over there. Um, speaking of that, you know, New York city, uh, was the epicenter of COVID-19 in the U S However, not all the boroughs <laughs> were impacted the same. The Bronx, uh, you know, which is very important in, in my world in hip hop, uh, had the most coronavirus infections per capita. The Bronx is also home to um, a congressional district, NY15, that is the poorest congressional district in the country and houses seven of New York City's Superfund sites. The South Bronx is nicknamed Asthma Alley. And I know that because me being from Louisiana, uh, my community is called Cancer Alley. But the South Bronx, Asthma Alley, has an asthma rate that is 8 to 12 times higher than the national average. Scientists have proven that COVID-19 is riding on particulate matter. So my question really is, what is the governor's office doing? to provide support to vulnerable communities who suffer from the cumulative impacts of heavy air pollution and environmental injustices? That's such a, that's such a good question. And it so um, mirrors the way the governor has been approaching this. I mean, he literally, um, I can't remember if it was earth day or earth week, um, but I remember him getting up and, and talking at his daily COVID briefing about um, this uh, coextensive phenomenon, right? Where we're seeing, uh, and the Chan School's done really good work um, in 
pinning this down with regression analyses, but you don't really need to go with a, go at a scatter plot. Uh, you can just drive down the street and you can figure out uh, what the heck's going on. Um, you know, we, we know, we know that, that uh, there is, um, if we connect the dots between particulate matter uh, and asthma and respiratory distress, um, and then the vulnerability that that presents, not just to COVID, uh, but to so many diseases, um, so many challenges. And you see that um, in the cancer clusters that we, you know, see a lot around a lot of industrial um, uh, areas. Um, and, and, and the concern that I think a lot of people have related to uh, benzene um, uh, and exposure to benzene around uh places where natural gas is being produced and where, by the way, this administration in Washington has pulled back from regulating methane, um, which hurts literally those workers and the communities where, where that stuff's being produced. Um, so how do we go after it? How do we get after that challenge? Um, that the, the answer has to be multifold. Um, it can't just be about air. Uh, it's got to be about air. It's got to be about water. It's got to be about transportation availability. Um, all we've got to scramble all the jets if we're going to solve a cumulative impact problem, right? Um, these these problems. It's really important to to um, uh, be open eyed about the enormity of the problem because it's been created by lots and lots of choices uh, to do the wrong thing. Uh, in the wrong place. Um, so let's, let's start with the power sector. Um, in the power sector, we are, we just finalized a clean energy standard for the state um, that will get us to at least 70% clean energy by 2030. Um, and the way that's, we're pursuing that's phenomenal. it. I just want to say that's, that's fantastic. Ambitious. Yeah, we got fantastic. it. Yeah, we got a sprint. You know, it's something we know how to do and we're going to do it. We got to sprint. Um, and in that, one of the things we did was actually included a focus on decarbonizing the grid in New York City. So um, uh, this is not my coinage. It's someone else's New York ISO. Um, I'll be the only person who ever cites a report from an ISO. Um, but they they, they looked at the, they looked at the grid and they found that there's a tale of two grids upstate grid is three fourths clean and the city and downstate grid is three fourths dirty. Um, and a big part of that is transmission and getting the clean energy into the, into the city. Um, so we've, we've embedded into our clean energy standards. I always see people listening from all over the country just kind of break yeah. down the national grid and just that, that, that break it down for folks listening and from California or to, from, to New Orleans. Yeah, totally. So, you know, what we're talking about nationally is something in the range of 40 ish percent clean grid um, and 60% reliance on, uh, on uh, emitting, uh, emitting energy. Um, and we are the sort of course that we're on for 2030 is one of the fastest clips in terms of transformation of the grid. And it requires us to do um, now I'm going a little bit down a rabbit hole, but I think it's an important one. It requires us to do multiple things uh, at the same time. So we've got to do solar and wind. We've got to do 
storage because, you know, sometimes the, the sun doesn't shine. Um, and unlike the detractors, the reality people will tell you there's a solution for that. It's called storing the electron. Um, we do it in every other sector of the economy. When you have the bounty, you reap it. Uh, then you put it in a storage box and then you use it when you need to. Um, but the other thing that we know that we need to do is build this transmission capacity. Um, in, on a national scale, probably to reach something similar to what we're talking about in New York, um, we'll need about a 20% increase in transmission capacity. And that's because some of this solar and wind, it's not generated near uh, where the energy is used. Um, and that's fine. We know how to build those lines. Uh, we know how to do that in a way that's just and equitable and, and advancing of our economic goals. Um, so that's part of our equation here in New York. But that's, that's you know, the macro power story. Um, I want to drill down on a piece of it uh, that I'm really excited about. Just uh, in, the, in the same week that we finalized our clean energy standard, um, our New York Power Authority, which is uh, um, uh, our, our uh, public power uh, provider in the state, huge, um, signed an MOU with environmental justice leaders in the state to come up with a targeted strategy to drive out peaker plants. Those are the, those are the plants when you drive around town, you see inside the city. Um, and, you know, we probably weren't geniuses when we put them inside the city, uh, but now we've got to figure out how to solve for that. So it's not just tackling this macro problem of how do you improve the quality of the grid? It's also focusing on the micro elements of it, which is where do those facilities exist today? How can we come up with good strategies around them? But, you know, in addition to that, Rev, um, within the last few months, we've, we've made it easier for environmental justice communities to get access to our state revolving funds for water projects. Um, we have invested uh, in a targeted way um, in retrofits uh, and electrification in the building sector for environmental justice communities. So we're looking at every sector, every strategy, and we're thinking about how do we fuse in a focus on environmental justice into those strategies, into their DNA? Because if you don't do that, you don't get after cumulative impacts in a serious way. The only serious way to do it is to scramble all the jets. So in, in that, let's, let's kind of dig into some of the, uh, the pipeline fights in New York, particularly one that's in North Brooklyn. And I, and I know there's been, first of all, I want to give a shout out to the pipeline fighters in New York State um, who have been doing some great work and have been pushing the policy from the outside. This has truly been the streets and the suites um, kind of connecting. So while there's been some great policies, and I want to give a shout out for Governor Cuomo for what he has been pushing against stopping those pipelines and his feelings to that, definitely want to give the activists and the environmentalists who have also been pushing from the outside, so the outside, inside, inside, outside strategy. But with that being said, there, there are some pipelines that are being put forth um, from the national grid and to be put forth through North Brooklyn. And this would be right along the aspect of fracking and frack gas. I know that the, the governor has, has, has spoken out against this, but he hasn't just 
downright gotten rid of these permits. Why not? So first, let me let me start where you started, um, which is to just marvel um, and uh, and be really appreciative to the folks who've been involved in in the advocacy work in the state. Um, and you know, it's it's what's remarkable in New York. It's not just environmental advocates. Um, we have this incredible um, set of really engaged partners, uh, our brothers and sisters in labor, um, who've been a real force multiplier in getting after climate solutions. Um, you know, when, when we can have a conversation uh, with EJ advocates and, uh, and labor um, sitting around a table, figuring out how to uh, deliver multiple wins for the, for the state of New York on things like offshore wind, that is, that is just incredible. And it's, and it's so exciting. Um, Number that's so that's number one, uh, the people. <laughs> number two is the policy, which is look, one thing that we know is we have an incredible reliance on uh, fossil in our building sector. So we talked about the grid earlier, right? We talked about the electricity, um, and we know how to get the electricity to be cleaner, and we've set this really clear standard. One of the things we're struggling with, I think not just here in New York, but around the world, is how do you um, heat up your buildings? How do you um, deliver that sort of comfort uh, and those needs um, uh, for, for uh, folks living residentially or, or commercially in these buildings um, that are sources of emissions? Um, and one way to do that is to get really serious about electrification and really serious about energy efficiency. And so we've actually um, uh, made significant plans and we've, we've, we, what's amazing is we've gotten the utilities to do it, um, to make investments in uh, appliance changes. Uh, so taking out that oil boiler out of the building, uh, which feels anachronistic in 2020, um, but still somehow like we have buildings that have an oil boiler in the basement and nest thermostat on the wall. It's just <laughs> mind blowing. Um, so we've got utilities and we've got the state now investing in electrifying those so that those can connect to that, that clean grid. Um, and that's, we definitely need to do that. So it's changing the demand it's reducing the demand through things like retrofits. And, you know, no matter what anyone tells you, um, energy efficient buildings can have really great windows. In fact, the great windows are what make them energy efficient. Um, and so, you know, we can, we can reduce the demand, we can shift the demand, and then we've got to make sure that we're holding the utilities accountable. They're, they work for us. Um, that's been the message from the governor. Ali, say that again for the people in the back of the room. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and, and let me say it for the people in the back of the room. Let me say it for the people in the boardrooms. If you're a utility, if you are a public utility, you work for the people. And here's what the people want. The people want clean air. They want clean water. And they want you to make investments that actually make sense that have been stress tested against demand, that have been stress tested against the reality that we face in climate change. So um, among 
the many blockbuster things that we've done uh, as a state, one of the things that we've done is, is required the utilities to take a hard look and stress test the investments that they're making. Um, and, you know, you saw that earlier this year um, with, with a pipeline that, um, that, that did not get built um, because the utilities went back to the drawing board. They did that stress testing analysis. They looked at it um, and, they, and they realized they did not need that pipeline um, to deliver reliable, um, affordable energy uh, and that they were able to advance it through other means. So I think that's the, that's the approach we've got to take. Um, we've got to keep engaged with all of our, um, our brothers and sisters across the coalition spectrum. We've got to listen to everybody. We've got to listen to the science and the facts. Um, we've got to invest in demand change. We've got to invest in demand reduction. Um, and then we've got to really stress test the investments that we make. No, I agree with you a hundred percent. And, um, I want to pivot from there because that will pivot. I want to stay on the same path, but regarding what's going on in North Brooklyn, um, I think that's important because the governor, as you know, um, has um, uh, the goal of his son program um, is to quote, help make it possible for New Yorkers to choose clean energy while lowering their energy costs, end quote. Um, and this obviously is in juxtaposition to a pipeline that we're talking about that endangers the lives of over 153,000 people, um, 81 childcare facilities, 55 schools, and one hospital in the evacuation zone. And so I guess, um, and we expect the community to pay for it. So I guess, where is the investment um, being made um, in community solar in this area of North Brooklyn and renewable. And because it seems like while these companies work for us, it seems like we're also, um, their business plan can be a death sentence for many in our community. So what about the community solar for this area as well? Yeah, this is something that um, I'm so proud uh, to be a part of uh, of the governor's team that's responsible for implementing his vital Brooklyn um, vision and initiative. And it's and it's one that's being done in the right way. It's one that uh, takes its inspiration and its cues and its leadership from the community. And that's that's so important. Um, vital Brooklyn's been. Uh, along with that New York sun program that you, that you identified really spurring the development of these resources right in the community, which, you know, is good for the jobs that it's creating right there. You can't really um, outsource overseas the jobs that are involved in installing the solar in Brooklyn, right? Cause they got to do those jobs right there. Um, and uh, you know, I think it, it, it gives an opportunity uh, uh, for uh, cleaning up the grid that we can sort of home grow right there uh, on site. There, there are 2,400, almost 2,500 um, completed solar projects in, um, in Brooklyn. Um, we've got another, uh, this is the kind of pipeline I like. There's another 500 of those projects in the pipeline, the project pipeline for solar. Um, and, 
you know, the other thing that's really exciting is that, um, you know, that, that's being paired with a focus on continuing to build out um, uh, affordable multifamily projects, um, multifamily housing projects that are really smart from the start, right? They've got um, a lot of this energy efficiency um, uh, and, and sort of climate friendly features built in right from the bottom up. So we're taking that approach. And, um, and, you know, one of the things, uh, you mentioned is, is, um, uh, hospitals and schools. And one of the things that we're, we're, we've definitely done and we, we intend to continue to do is partner with those community facilities, um, make them the site for solar, make them the site for storage. I love that. Um, uh, you know, we, when we, when we're, when we're hit by a storm, um, uh, that also makes those places more resilient, um, makes it more likely that the power is going to be on, uh, in that community center. So, um, we're investing in Brooklyn, we're investing in the Bronx, we're investing, uh, around the state and we're doing it on a targeted basis, um, to, to try to spur solar, to try to spur storage. Let's get to health and wealth. Um, and I think it's, uh, as we as we begin to move out of 2020 and go into 2021, this within New York, but even nationally, it's just very important. And so oftentimes, um, administrations such as the Cuomo administration um, loop climate policy and solutions into economic plans. Um, so one, you know, kind of break that down, because I think that there, there are many um, within the climate movement who sometimes get frustrated because they feel like um, we're missing their, the fierce urgency of now, Dr. King said. And we sometimes wrap it around only being an economic driver. So, you know, what does that mean? And then I guess to just add to that, um, is that part of the strategy uh, for New York offshore wind plant uh, for the uh, 9,000 megawatts to, to bring clean energy to New York, renewable energy and jobs. So is that, oh, I'm just trying to connect the dots there. If you can kind of break down those silos, that, that'd be amazing. Yeah, we've got to break down the silos, right? Because um, otherwise we don't, we don't get uh, all of the, the impact that we can unlock. Um, uh I don't fully understand what think 100 means. Maybe we can riff on that after, uh, after this chat, (laughs) but, but we've got to think about, we've got to think about all of the solution. Um, and all of the solution means not just grabbing those, you know, molecules of CO2 out of the sky. It means, uh, grabbing that opportunity for our communities, for our workers. Um, so let me be very specific. Um, when we went out with the largest solicitations, the la- largest procurements for renewables in the United States ever over the summer, uh, biggest ever, uh, during what would have been, you know, appropriately deemed a time of economic headwinds, um, we leaned into that. We leaned in and we said, if you're going to bid in, you better be paying prevailing wages. If you're going to bid in, you're going to get an advantage. If you have identified uh, 
black, brown, minority, disadvantaged, women-owned businesses as part of your supply chain. You're going to get an advantage. Um, if you're going to bid in, you better have a plan for how you're going to deliver benefits to disadvantaged communities, how you're going to try to make sure that your workforce is sourced from the communities that have borne the downside of pollution for so many years. So it's, that's what's so exciting about the New York climate law um, uh, of the, the vision that Governor Cuomo has laid out on climate. Um, and I guess what I want to convey is, you know, there was a time when it was rhetoric and then there was a time when it was legislation. And now is the time that it's implementation. And now when the rubber is meeting the road, you better believe it. We have shown how it's possible to go after the prize in a way that brings people along and in a way that, that seeks that opportunity out for good paying jobs and for advantage for repair uh, for ladders of opportunity into our communities that have been locked out and left behind. No, thank you for that. I think that's, I mean, I think that's important. And that actually does lead into me actually tell you what take 100% is from the hip hop caucus perspective. Uh, you know, thank you for that intro for let me say this actually. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> um, but it, it really is a, a double meaning there. I mean, the one meaning is obviously we, we need to transition from fossil fuels to clean energy um, um, uh, 100%. Um, and many, obviously, the, the, some people will say that's by 2030, by 2040, 2050, but we have to do that um, and to make that happen. The other piece to that is obviously then looking at the culture and that the people in the communities we're talking about from the Bronx to Brooklyn to Albany, New York, to Binghamton, to Buffalo, to wherever, is that we need to also be positive and, and, and think 100, as they would say, um, and be in a way in which, you know, we have to be, not just be revolutionary, but be solutionary um, to literally find a model um, that we want to um, create and move forward with that. And it just doesn't mean that we're just out there just yelling at the sky but we're literally trying to come together to literally make things happen. And I think in overall with Think 100, we believe that this movement needs to be broadened, that it needs to have um, black, indigenous, people of color. It has to have low, moderate income people. Um, it has to have, you know, uh, uh, it has to deal with the issues, as you mentioned earlier, to break down the silos so that we're breaking down the issues of fighting poverty and pollution at the same time. And so, I think that we believe that right now the movement as a structure has been a predominantly white movement and that movement doesn't work. That this movement has to be uh, black, white, brown, everybody, humans. And it has to be also Republican and Democrat. I think that this is not a, this is not an issue. This is not a partisan issue. Uh, it's not about clean air and clean water. Um, um, it's not about literally, you know, your, your political party. It's about existence. Um, and so I guess that, that leads into, I have, I really got like two more questions for you. And I just want to just kind of just touch on that actually in regards to this clean energy revolution that, that needs to happen. Um, and how do you see, how do you see people of color and low moderate income people being engaged and being a part of the clean energy revolution? 
it's got to be everywhere from the idea to the implementation. Um, so, you know, the model and just to take, you know, New York as, as a case study, uh, having everybody at the table when the legislation was being written, um, having everybody at the table when the implementation plan is being developed, um, that's true for us in the um, scoping plan process that we've got going on here in the state. We've got a broad diversity of folks involved. Um, but it's got to it's got to be the case in the community. Um, it's got to be the case where um, uh, where these projects are being built, who is building them, um, and who it's working for. So, you know, one example of this, we made a big push. Um, we made a big push around electric vehicle charging infrastructure. Um, we announced that we're going to, uh, with a combination of private investment. Um, be able to invest about a billion and a half dollars in um, making charging infrastructure uh, more ubiquitous in the state of New York. And as part of that, and by the way, this is an idea that uh, Peggy Shepard and, and Cecil Corbin-Mark from, from the WEAC team uh, gave us, uh, part of that was we have included a specific prize focused on delivering um, benefits to environmental justice communities. And, and how are we putting that prize together? We're actually inviting input from those very folks in designing the prize. Um, and so I think that's, that's the key, right? You gotta have, you gotta have the voices at the table. Um, you've got to have the opportunity be within reach for everybody. Um, it's not going to work if, you know, you come up with a plan and then a bunch of license plates from out of state come in uh, and they, and they do the work. You know, when you drive around the parking lot for, for a solar site, um, it's gotta be your neighbors uh, that are also there doing that work. That's what builds the political will to keep going. Cause let's be, let's be real with everybody who's listening, right? This is not all easy. This is not all going to be without friction. It's not going to be without challenges and hiccups. We're going to screw up along the way. But the, the, the way we will get through is if we do it together. Uh, and that's, I love that, that part of what Think 100 means is bringing as many people along as possible. This will not be something we can do with half of us or a quarter of us uh, or people uh, in one room or another it's going to have to be uh, a movement of the, of all of the willing, um, everyone being clear eyed about what we need to accomplish. Nah, that's it. I'm, I'm with, well, we with you here at the caucus on that. Uh, 100%. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> we are with you. We are with you on that. Um, you know, uh, Brother, Brother Ali, this, this is my last question that I really, and I guess this one is the kind of the culmination. Thank you, for, I, mean, I, I mean, for everything you, you talked about. And I know that you brought a lot of different things people are going to be listening to, and they probably have a whole lot of questions on, on things that we've discussed um, during our time here on The Coolest Show. But I guess what I want to get to is this. Um, as you know, 2020 has been, there are some years I was told that bring answers 
And there are some years that bring questions. And 2020 is one of those years that has done both. Brought answers and brought questions. And as we started off this conversation, uh, you discuss what the environment meant to you and why you even do this work. And that was embedded in literally about seeing people's lives be better. And for that, I thank you so much. And I guess one of the things there in this is that, um, as you know, particularly for Black communities, um, we've been dealing with an issue. This, you know, it's hard to hear about what's going on with the Bronx. It's hard to hear what's going on in Brooklyn. It's hard to hear what's going on all over the country, where, again, they're dealing with the environmental injustice in their communities. But this is really my, 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 my thing to you, this last thing, and it's kind of a maybe both philosophical and even more even something that hopefully we can just, you can dig into. But it's this. We all know that climate justice is racial justice, and racial justice is climate justice. That's, that's, that's clearly as we talk about this issue. But one of the things I wanted to bring forth when we talk about New York is that Eric Garner, for example, Eric Garner was, was killed um, due to an illegal chokehold. And we heard him say, I can't breathe. We would then hear that again this year. And we all witnessed in horrific fashion to see George Floyd say, I can't breathe. Well, what many people don't know is that the borough that Eric Garner lived in received an F for air quality. And most of Eric Garner's children had asthma. One of his children, um, Erica Garner, who was only in her 20s, who was fighting for her father against police brutality, would end up having a heart attack, cause it back from an asthma attack, um, and she would die. And so I guess as we, as we close out and you think about this, and particularly for Black and Brown and Indigenous people, um, they're dying. You know, they're dying. And they're dying because of either the fear of police brutality, they're dying because of the pandemic, they're dying because of the pollution, and they and they tired of dying. They done dying. So I guess as we as we wrap this up, and you're there working with Governor Cuomo, when you're dealing with others and policy, that 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 pain, that that utter pain of seeing those around you die. What would you want to say to them? I mean, what what kind of message would you want to give to those communities who are dealing with poverty, pollution? the pandemic, and all those things that are causing them to literally not live a life of, of, of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. That's, that's so beautiful and, and so well said. And I think the first thing I want to hold on to is the sense of pain. Um, I'll just speak very personally. Um, 2020, one of the answers, you talked about questions and answers. One of the answers for me in 2020 was how to feel that pain fully and entirely. Um, that's what this year 
has taught me to do. Um, and then have it turn into something that gives us power. Um, our pain should be the source of power that allows us to meet this moment. Um, it should be what steals our resolve. It should be what sturdies our vision um, and makes us steadfast. And so I think the, the message to, to our brothers and sisters is feel that pain. Make sure others understand it. Know that this is a moment of great challenge. Um, and embedded in that is, is a line of sight to the top of the mountain. There's something there. And, um, and we're going to get there. Um, we cannot let the pain make us less powerful. Um, it has to be our strength. It has to be a source of optimism that we've felt what it feels to be hurt. Um, and that should give us a reason to be hopeful. Um, we can turn this around. Uh, and, 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 you know, we're talking about climate, we're talking about race, we're talking about justice, we're talking about everything. And that brings me back to, you know, the beginning about environment. It's what we feel. It's where we are. It's, it's how we live. It's everything. Um, and this is that moment of truth. Hmm. Powerful. That's Ali A. Zaidi, the, De the Deputy Secretary for Energy and Environment, Office of Governor Andrew Cuomo. He is our guest today. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Ali, if folks want to find you, how can they, how can they get in contact with you? Uh, well, I think they should... Um they should reach out. Uh, they can, they can email me. Um, they can call me, uh, and I'm on, uh, you know, Twitter and all the other things out there. Uh, so they should reach out. They should give it, give me a shout. And so grateful to be on with you, Rev. Uh, so grateful for your leadership, for your organization's work, for your voice, for your truth, um, for this, uh, for this platform where you use the mic to lift up the voices of um, I looked at the other folks you've had on. I'm humbled to be in their company. Uh, thank you for giving uh, them a platform. Thank you for getting their voice, their story out there. Uh, so beautiful. Um, very much the coolest show I've, I've ever been on. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a nonprofit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. Think one honey, think one honey, think one honey, think one honey.